0: On this episode of China Unscripted, the Chinese Communist Party is taking over Europe, not by force, but by money. But a growing backlash could spell trouble. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell.
1: I'm Shelley Chong.
0: And I'm Matt Gnaizda. And you know, the Biden administration still hasn't made its China policy uh, clear yet. However, Biden has talked a lot about Multilateralism, uh, that that he will work with US allies to counter the Chinese Communist Party.
1: You know who else talks about multilateralism?
0: Who, Shelley? Xi Jinping. So much in common.
1: Yes. Maybe
2: there's some kind of win-win mutual
0: cooperation we can achieve. Maybe. I wonder. Well, to talk to us today about Europe is Teresa Fallon, director of the Center for Russia, Europe, Asia Studies. Well, thanks for joining us today, Teresa
3: delay to be with you today.
0: Okay. Well, we definitely want to talk about uh, China and Europe, but when talking about Europe, uh, what's happening in Western Europe and sort of Central Eastern Europe are sort of different topics. So let's begin with Western Europe. I think the big China, Western Europe thing is the EU trade deal. What's interesting about that is how much the US tried to stop that, or at least delay it, and Europe just didn't seem to care what the US said.
3: Well, I'm not so sure that the US was trying to stop it. I mean, there was the email mess or the Twitter message from Jake Sullivan stating, you know, we would really look forward to working with you on this. And this has been uh, in the works for about 7 years. They had 35 meetings on it, and it was kind of just simmering on the back burner for the longest time. And so it was designed to replace the 25 already existing bit so bilateral investment treaties between eu member states so because of the lisbon treaty uh, dg trade has uh, control over all of this so what they wanted to do is just come up with one massive agreement and so china wasn't really too uh, motivated to get this done originally because uh, they pretty much had everything that they wanted in europe uh, europe is very open it believes in free trade so china really had pretty much what they wanted in Europe, whereas the Europeans were the demanders. They wanted more access in China and they wanted to lock in already what they had. So Wang Yi was here in Brussels uh, back in December 2019. And it was really interesting. Uh, The first, he took questions from the audience. And the first question was about the bilateral investment treaty. And he was, in my mind, uh, trying to kind of tamper down expectations. Uh, They said, will this be completed? Uh, by the uh, the deadline of December 2020, and he said, "You know, we are a developing economy, and I don't think we can do this." And so, I just thought, "Oh, this isn't going to happen." And then we saw fast forward with the election of Joe Biden; things changed because Joseph Biden made it very clear that he would actually work with allies, rejuvenate the relationships, and just prior to that, there was what we call the EU. A us love letter so the europeans wrote this kind of a new agenda on how they can cooperate uh, transatlantic relations so that almost sweetened the pot for china and really motivated them to push forward on this agreement so it was pushed through so quickly uh, that it was actually during the presidency of angela merkel uh, she had the rotating eu council presidency which is a six month period and they set priorities, what they wanted to, to accomplish. And getting this deal done was one of the things, key issues that she wanted to accomplish. So I should just back up a tiny bit, because what really happened, how the Europeans got this uh, deadline, was they managed to arbitrage the tensions between the U.S. and China during the U.S. Uh, negotiations. And so for two years prior to that, the uh, 2017 2018 the Europeans were unable to conclude any sort of uh, statement at the end of the annual EU China summit and because of the tensions in 2019 uh, the Europeans managed to get the European China to actually promise uh, a deadline to complete this BIT or what the Europeans call the comprehensive agreement on investment. And so they had this deadline but there was actually no movement. And then we saw the EU China summit. During the press conference, it was made quite clear by Ursula van der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, she complained that there was, real no move, there was really no movement. And she even stated publicly, we're not sure if the Chinese even want this investment. So with the election of uh, President Trump, uh, Biden, there was a huge acceleration. And it happened so quickly, really, uh, to get it over the line by the end of December. Many journalists misre- misreported and said they signed a deal. But the reality was they just agreed in principle, and that was agreed December 30th. And so nothing of value has been published since. So we just have kind of the rough draft, but for trade agreements or for investment agreements, what's important are the annexes, and these have not yet been published. So they're still being negotiated. The devil's always in the details. So it's very hard to comment on something that we don't even see what's what's in the the agreement but of course before all of this happened the european parliament signaled that they didn't like the issues about human rights and that they were going to oppose this agreement they would not ratify it because dg trade can negotiate it the european council has to endorse it but the european parliament also has to ratify it so they made it clear that they would stop this unless it's real um improvement uh, in regards to the international labor organization ilo conventions because china uses very soft language we promise to work hard or we will work towards this goal eventually but that wasn't good enough for the parliament so that's where we stand today but we really don't know what's in the annexes and so i think that uh how the u.s perceived that all right? There was four years of the Trump administration where the Europeans complained that they wanted more um, consultation. They wanted to work more closely together. And then the Biden administration kind of signaled, we we'll wait for us. We're coming into office. And yet they went ahead with this agreement. Would they have gotten a better deal if they worked together with U.S.? I guess we'll never really know. But the more countries together, they could have used that as a way to get gain more leverage. But the reality is that some people in the Biden administration, you have some who are pessimists about Europe and some who are optimists. Well, because of this initial reaction of the Europeans to move ahead with the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment, when Jake Sullivan kind of signaled, wait for us, it's only three weeks until we, we come into office. Some people have interpreted that as a, an opportunistic movement by the Europeans. They, they were unwilling to wait for the Biden administration and work closely with them, even though they have this kind of love letter about closer cooperation on transatlantic relations on the other hand you have people who are trader you know in dg trade who would argue that for example when the us was negotiating the tpp they didn't consult with their european counterparts so that they had every right to consult to to do this agreement without the americans uh, or consulting with them but The nature of of the world has changed, the geopolitical landscape has changed, and clearly uh, President Biden wanted to work more closely with allies, and the Europeans seem to have rejected that at least with this agreement. Now, it's not clear if it will get through. Uh, It's difficult to determine what's in the agreement, who will oppose it, but it seems that there is a growing uh, narrative. For example, I'm based in Brussels, and the Belgian uh, government, inside parliament there they have come up with a statement that genocide is happening in Xinjiang so if there is more movement in other european member states this will be very difficult to sign a type this type of agreement when other you know it's these are democracies and that the public is very much aware of what's going on and it it becomes far more complicated so there's about a year um, between having the legal scrubbing of the document having the annexes published and all the other uh, things that could go on now. I was just reading recently about Xi Jinping spoke to President Macron yesterday, and was trying to, you know, wants to hurry this process up because the unintended consequence of this agreement now is that there's a far there's far more attention on Xinjiang, and this is in the headlines almost every day now. And I think this is kind of the unintended consequence of pushing this agreement through in principle, but all the fine details now. Many governments, many Public figures, uh, many people in the European Parliament are holding talks, conferences on on Xinjiang. So I think this was the unintended consequence that Xi Jinping is trying to get this finished over the line and doesn't want anyone to talk about it anymore.
2: So really, in, in many ways, the Chinese Communist Party would have been better off from its own point of view by just keeping the bilateral agreements instead of trying to make this a big Europe thing, right?
3: Well, I think that they accomplished three things with this. Uh, because they showed no interest in getting this done and it was kind of a carrot that you could always hold out to the europeans to keep them to behave themselves right so the europeans were kind of quiet on certain issues in regard to hong kong and because there's always a promise of a possible uh investment deal and and let's let's face it the, the clear winner in all of this was germany because if you take german investments and german businesses uh if you take the next five EU member states combined, they do not equal Germany. So Germany was clearly driving this. And um, so you had, the stars were aligned. You had Angela Merkel as rotating European Council president. You had uh, you have a German pr- president of the European Commission, which is rather unusual. You also have a German who's working for GD head of DG Trade. So you had all this kind of like German engine that was kind of pushing this over the line. And yet, even with that, The BDI, the German Federation of Industry, was not really happy with the agreement. So uh, there's been a lot of noise, um, but there doesn't seem to be many people I can find who are actually happy with this agreement. And we're really not sure what China gets Uh, in return. uh, There's some. Uh, discussion that Chinese labor will be able to move uh, more freely throughout Europe. I think in a post-COVID-19 landscape, that could be problematic for Europeans who will be out of work. And what does that mean? So it's really loosey-goosey right now. We're not very clear of what's in that. And so I think the lack of clarity is also a problem. So I think um, I I was saying that there are three things that China accomplished. One was really to irritate the United States and, and to prevent a united front on china so they were effective at doing that the strategy of china has always been to weaken transatlantic alliances so that was quite uh, an important uh, accomplishment i understand that xi jinping even came in at the last minute to make personal concessions and the europeans weren't completely happy with the deal but they thought this is the best deal we can get and xi jinping made it clear like if you don't agree now you this will not you know, be available to you in January. Uh, so they had to take it or leave it type of thing. And, and lastly, um, they wanted to prove, you know, Xi Jinping, it, it was a great thing for the domestic audience after pretty much a horrific year with COVID-19, questions about obfuscation, about the origins of COVID-19, uh, the new security law in, in Hong Kong, uh, problems with Australia, uh, FTA pretty much being ripped up, uh, the world seeing, you know, China's 14 uh, demands for special behavior from the Australians, uh, their list of grievances, problems on the Indian border, I mean, tensions uh, in the South China Sea, saber rattling towards Taiwan. The Europeans signed this agreement, so it almost legitimizes Beijing. It was almost a a reward for their bad behavior. So I think that from that point of view, China really accomplished a lot by having this deal, pushing it over the line. And I think that it did set kind of poison the well a bit in transatlantic relations. I think the Biden administration is wise not to make this an issue because they have other issues in, on which to cooperate. But it also kind of shows that there are many opportunists in Europe that they should be, you know, more wary of.
0: Well, so I think this really reveals sort of this uh, tension in Europe uh, between, as you mentioned, all the forces that are concerned about human rights in China, uh, from public to government officials. But then you have sort of the German engine, the investment, the uh, the development companies that want to do business in China. Uh, How has the Communist Party been leveraging that in Europe?
3: Well, they're very clever about that because they never need to lobby themselves. They have the companies do it. And so there was this really striking example of this with uh, the head of Ericsson, Uh, telecommunications company, but they they actually build things in China. So uh, in regards to the whole Huawei debate, there's been uh, suggestions like, why aren't we investing in our own European companies like Ericsson or Nokia? And so because Sweden is so transparent, the journalists asked for access to these uh, phone discussions, uh, messages on, on their phone, on their mobile phones. And so, they just mined the messages to the, the, the trade minister. And it was quite clear that the head of Ericsson was saying he was lobbying on behalf of Huawei, who you would think is their competitor. So this is the, 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 the ability of China's economic coercion. You can actually get your competitor lobby on your behalf and say, because Sweden had actually um, said Huawei was not a trusted vendor, they, therefore they couldn't actually participate in the Swedish market. And so you have... Someone from Ericsson lobbying saying, please, please reconsider this. You need to have Huawei in the market here. Wow. This is how it works. And the same thing in Germany, you have the big car industry lobbying. You never need the Chinese to lobby. They get the companies to lobby on their behalf. And it's quite effective that way.
2: I mean, I think it's weird that, you know, Germans would want to, you know, stand up and work on behalf of an authoritarian regime. But, uh, you know, with, with Sweden, it's interesting because... The 5G clean network, right, is something that the U.S. have been pushing for for the last couple of years, right? So the whole idea of of the 5G clean networks is that you can't have uh, 5G products made in China. So what happens when you have Ericsson or Nokia manufacturing their products in China, but they're a Swedish company?
3: Right. So this is a problem. And I think people are starting to identify that, especially with the supply chain issues and Germany, interestingly enough, uh, has come up with a huge fund to make their own company that will be completely independent. So this is a positive development. It remains to be seen how that works out. Uh, But that's clear that Huawei is still building on the ground in Germany. They never really shut the door on Huawei and they're establishing facts on the ground. So Huawei never gives up. I mean, uh, you had the UK say no to Huawei, um, the Netherlands, Sweden, France, and now Germany never really said no to Huawei. So I think that they won't give up and Huawei is continuing to work there. But uh, this creates a problem of the clean network, as as you noted. And it's not just the clean network, we also see... Uh, there's it's called the peace cable and this is a cable uh, built by china uh, to connect africa and it's supposed to land in marseille and also connect through pakistan so
0: pakistan the corner of peace
3: <laughs> so the you know it, it, there it's below most people's radar these kind of we call it the battle of the bottom the, the fiber optic cables that china is building and that these countries will start to rely on and if they're actually coming into Europe as well. It doesn't matter if you have a clean network because you have these cables. And this causes issues for NATO as well because one of the requirements of being a member of NATO is that you have a reliable communication system. So these are longer term issues, I think, that which need to be addressed. And before China was really on Sweden's radar, they had even sold underwater fiber optic cable to a Chinese company. So there are some great concerns on, on infrastructure, uh, strategic security issues in Europe because at earlier it was like we're a free market they weren't really thinking strategically and we saw you know a great deal of investment in, in European ports by the Chinese as well as these uh, electrical grids and you know the, the height of the economy so uh, that the commanding heights of the economy so I think that these are of great concern for planners here in Europe
1: you know we had done a story a few years ago about the fiber optic cables and that China was building in these like Pacific islands and stuff like that. I had no idea it was already coming to Europe.
3: And it's also in the Arctic. I mean, I, I was at a conference several years ago, and I was like, wow, you know, there's one Chinese man there. Uh, and he was like, we will build the, you know, the cable to connect all these uh, indigenous communities. So it was quite, you know, they really have a long term strategy. And I've always said they're the best strategy that they ever devised was to convince the Europeans that they had no strategy, that they're just business people just fumbling hmm. around, trying to find good business deals. But they really do seem to have a long-term strategy. I think it took a long time, but the Europeans have slowly twigged on.
0: Well, so this raises an important question. Uh, with the kind of control uh, China has shown to have over European industry, you know, the Biden administration talks about working with allies to counter China. It, how successful will that be?
3: How will that be? I mean that uh last Friday, we had the Munich Security Conference, and this is kind of the, you know, Oscars for security issues in Europe. And you know, I call it, you know, the, the apple pie speech. So, you know, Joseph Biden said everything he needed to say about Article 5 and NATO, and, and just, you know, we want to revitalize the relationship. And then Angela Merkel spoke, and she changed her tune, because on the sidelines of Davos, uh, a lot of journalists picked up what she had said, that she would not join some sort of counterbalancing coalition uh, of democracies to to try to shape China's policy, that she did not want this type of Cold War bloc system, that she would not participate in that. And then shortly afterwards, Macron, uh, President Macron ha- actually had a talk at the Atlantic Council and he said the same thing. So the franco german engine, they were on the same page that they would not join in any sort of counterbalancing uh, bloc. And so I think that uh, the US needs to maneuver wisely and because Europe has not been able to speak with one voice on China since in my analysis back to 2016, that you can't expect Europe to act as a whole because with 27 member states, it's always the lowest common denominator. And so as we've seen, the Chinese have created these sub-regional groupings, for example, the 17 plus one in Central and Eastern Europe, this kind of Trojan horse, way to kind of divide and conquer. The U.S. has said um, people who are working uh, in the U.S. administration have published papers, and they'll be more like coalitions of the willing. And I think that the U.S. has other allies that they can work with, uh, Japan, South Korea, Australia, Um, and if Europe, as the EU level, is unable to, I think that they might create coalitions within European uh, member states, and also some that straddle it, because you have a country like Norway, which is a member of NATO, but it's not a member of the EU. So you could create coalitions of the willing with these types of European countries. And also a very important country, the UK, which also Brexited at the same time that the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment was uh, getting negotiated. The calculus in Europe has changed dramatically. So you have the UK, which actually has a substantial defense um, compared to the rest of the EU member states outside of the EU and therefore actually probably more uh, open to cooperation with the U.S. than maybe other continental member states are. So I think a U.S., U.K., maybe some coalition partners within Europe, like Poland or other countries, that might be the way forward for the U.S.
0: Well, it's interesting you say that because this, this sort of idea of the U.S. creating this coalition of the willing, that's exactly the same strategy the Chinese Communist Party used to undermine the EU uh, belt and road projects in Greece, uh, Italy, and um, the 17 plus one countries.
3: Ideally, it would be nice if they could pull Europe along. But I've been looking at this for quite a long time. And there are countries like um, Hungary, for example, uh, that's an EU member state that's also a member of the 17 plus one. They are a traditional blocking power. So China likes the EU because it's a great... Uh, trading place they all have the same rules China needs to just get into one country and they can trade with you know 27 other countries so they really like the big market aspect of it but it's more of a nuanced relationship they want to have enough power and leverage to actually stop or water down directives that they don't like or agree with for example the very first time I saw this was in 2016 with the arbitral tribunal decision on Philippines versus the PRC in regard to the South China Sea. So everyone expected the EU to support this because it's everything that they stand for, right? So rule rule of law, multilateralism, you know, all these issues. And at the end of the day, it was three countries that watered it down. So you had Hungary, Greece, and Croatia. Croatia had their own maritime dispute with Slovenia. So they didn't want to, to sign on to this um, arbitral tribunal decision on a maritime decision. So I understand with their position, but Hungary, Because the EU, when they make a statement, they they speak for all 27 member states. But Hungary even published their own statement. And there was a joke here in Brussels that it sounded a lot like a translation of Chinese speaking points. Hmm. So they actually, China only needed one country to slow things down. And of course, Greece was part of that grouping. Now, because of geopolitical issues uh, in the Mediterranean, in the eastern Mediterranean, Greece is actually far more cooperative because they have tensions with Turkey and there's oil and gas issues uh, in, in the Eastern Med. So I think Greece has made it clear that they want to cooperate more now with the United States. So I think the key issue now will be Hungary. And uh, Greece has, has signaled that they will uh, go along more with the US because they have other security interests uh, that Trump um, kind of China's economic promises. And it remains to be seen how this will work out. So. The calculus is constantly changing in europe it's not very clear it's not very easy and i it's also difficult for for china to deal with this constantly changing uh calculus you know in italy uh, we saw under the previous government of conte they signed on to the belt and road initiative and now they're having a rethink about that so there's a new government under draghi and they're kind of disappointed they didn't get as many economic goodies as they had hoped for so it, it's more complex but it's clear that we saw with the comprehensive agreement on investment, it was done virtually, the agreement, and of course Angela Merkel was there, because she was a rotating council president for six months, so if the EU was really strong, she wouldn't even need to be there, but she she chose to be there, but there was absolutely no reason for uh, Macron to be there, and so this angered the rest of European member states, so you have the famous um, screenshot of Xi jumping in the middle, and then you have Angela Merkel in the left corner, you have uh, Macron in the right-hand corner, Ursula van der Leyen in the left lower corner, and Charles Michel, president of the council, in the lower right corner. Everyone's like, why is Macron there? He has no reason to be there. So it gave the impression that Germany and France were playing above the heads of everybody else. And perhaps Angela Merkel didn't want it to look like a German show only, so she she invited him to come along, or he wanted to be there anyway. So, so the idea that China or Xi Jinping wanted to have this kind of special European leaders' meeting is also picking off member states. So it's also creating tensions uh, across Europe. The third country since the UK left is Italy. So Italy was actually the most frustrated with all of this. And so uh, you see them playing at very different levels, very different games are going on and tensions. So you have tensions now between the European Commission and the European Parliament. In regard to the comprehensive agreement on investment, you have tensions within Europe between the top two member states, uh, France and Germany, and the rest. And you have kind of this east-west divide as well. And plus you have other sub-regional groupings of, you know, northern Scandinavian countries plus the southern uh, countries. So Europe is very fluid and things are changing. We know Angela Merkel uh, will be coming to the end of her mandate by the end of this year, they're having elections in September. She's been in power for 15 years. So her views on China, um, maybe the next government might have a different viewpoint. Her views have kind of stayed the same.
0: That's a polite way to put it.
3: <laughs> so I think that um, history might not be very kind to her in regard to how she has you know, dealt with China. I mean, she... The last visit she had there, I mean, she, she has gone many times, I think at least 12 times. She didn't even mention Xinjiang. She had to, to address Hong Kong because it was headline news. And she, she made a comment about Hong Kong. But this idea of balancing values and economics, I think clearly at the end of her 15 years in power, business rules for her. It, there is no discussion. Um, and, you know, this idea... That Germany, of all countries, you know, the whole never again, never again, uh, except B W and Xinjiang. I, I think it's very problematic, and I think that that was one thing that Europe had, you know, this kind of conscious of because of what they had suffered uh, under during the war and World War Two, and and they've always been advocates for human rights. We've seen that erode over time in in regard to the relationship with the PRC. So this is, I think, a, a huge problem, and the public opinion is so different in europe now compared to the elites who are kind of running the show so how they're going to square this remains to be seen but it seems that many people who maybe didn't pay too much attention to china during this period of covid19 and being locked up at home and having time to think and reflect public opinion surveys have shown a steep decline in uh, perceptions of china
1: across the board and they're you know uh medical diplomacy their mass diplomacy hasn't stopped that
3: well the mass diplomacy it's quite interesting because italy was the first country to uh, have gone through the pandemic and they asked for help from the other eu countries And we immediately saw France and Germany say no PPE can be allowed outside our borders, uh, personal protective equipment PPE. And so Italy was really frustrated by that. And they thought so much for European solidarity. China came to their aid. uh, And in some respects, they conflated aid with purchases. You know, they were showing like, we're saving you. A friend in need is a friend indeed. And Italians were very grateful for this help. Uh, It was needed. And... A lot of things uh, later were, were reported to be defective or unusable. But I think that the initial feeling in Italy was gratitude towards Beijing for, for this help. And after the initial stumbles of the European Union, uh, they were able to improve the situation. They actually were able to help Italy. They did export PPE. Even Germany um, flew in some Italian patients to, to take care of them in their hospitals. But the initial steps were very bad. And this created a, a great deal of Euroscepticism in Italy. I, I've been going to Italy for about 30 years. I'm, I'm married to an Italian. And everyone we know was very pro-Europe. But because of what's happened, they're they're extremely skeptical now towards Brussels. So this mass diplomacy uh, was actually, you know, there's a little wedge there. And then Beijing could kind of widen it. And, you know, this is... Useful for them. And so mass diplomacy, as we know, quickly morphed into wolf warrior diplomacy. And I think some of this wolf warrior diplomacy already pre existed in Europe, but it was actually magnified during the COVID 19 crisis. For example, in Sweden, before COVID 19, you had this uh, the Chinese ambassador said, for our friends, we have wine, and for our enemies, we have a gun, in regard to the whole. Um, Hong Kong bookseller Gui Minh Hai and, and that whole uh, situation which created create a lot of tensions, uh, diplomatic tensions between Sweden and, Hong, and and Beijing. So I think that across the board, we saw Wang Yi come for this kind of reassurance tour across Europe and all he did, he kept putting his foot in it. And, you know, it, At the time we had what happened in the Czech Republic, uh, the head of it going on a trip to Taiwan and then he called him out and, and humiliated him and on German soil, so the Germans had to say something. Heiko Maas made a statement. So it seems that Europeans aren't used to this type of brusque, kind of um, arrogant type of diplomacy. And I think this also is a red flag to some of them wondering, what does this mean about our future relationship with China? But I should add, uh, only days before the CHI was finally agreed, in principle, the leading German diplomat at the United Nations was retiring. And he made a speech and the, he, he mentioned Xinjiang as well. And the Chinese said good riddance to him. So it seemed that there could be no insult to any, even a German leading ambassador that would sideline the comprehensive agreement on investment. That was like a clear goal. And so there, there seems to be uh, business interests were leading and the other type of arrogant or mistreatment even of their diplomats was was ignored so i think that this is a a worrisome trend and i think europe you know might see the biden administration through different eyes now we hope let's see
1: it's really interesting when you brought up earlier the idea that the fact that europe was so uh, eager to sign this and like china suddenly like turned around uh, and signed it at the end of 2020 and it kind of gave them cover in a certain way to all of like the diplomatic missteps they had done in 2020 and the coronavirus and all this stuff um do you think that Europe is going to continue to be willing to forgive almost anything if the this trade investment deal goes through if like if they can actually get more
3: business in China is that going to be enough that's a good question to me it seems the german growth strategy is clearly based on on china they see their future growth uh, is related to China their Eurostat published figures last week again journalists had misquoted it saying that uh, China had replaced the United States as Europe's biggest trading partner what they had eliminated were the trade and services and that was actually substantially larger with the US so perceptions matter um, the perception that the US is in decline and China is on the rise makes many in Europe think, hmm, who should we hitch our car to? Should we go with China or go with the United States? But this narrative of values doesn't seem to be animating the discussion very much. And so some decisions will have to be made and some of them might be more painful. In a post-COVID-19 economic landscape, I think it'll be harder for countries to make these decisions because they'll need to grow their economies. And Europe has all, all in October, they they it came into actually the FDI screening mechanism, the foreign direct investment screening mechanism. It had been worked on for about a year and it was actually created because in the 2008 financial crisis, there was kind of a sale of the century in Europe and Beijing came, you know, Chinese companies came and and bought a lot of and invested uh, across Europe. And so I think that they were trying to prepare for that occasion now. And even Germany has a special fund So if there's a a very key technological company that Chinese investors want to to buy, they can protect it through this fund. So I think that there are some lessons learned there from the crisis in 2008. But I think that Europe is largely silent. And I think that they see the growth strategy for many companies is in China. And, you know, the fact that there's forced labor, uh, kind of less stringent environmental rules, Labour laws are, you know, pretty flexible there. There's a reason why companies want to go to China. And, you know, there are many rules and regulations in Europe. So European companies do want to go there. When I when I lived in Beijing, I remember at the European Chamber of Commerce, this man was like caught, a spokesperson was caught like a deer in the headlights because a journalist asked at one of the press conferences uh, about a report they had published. and And the journalist said, so what you're saying is, European companies should come to China because, you know, they have lax labor laws and they don't care about the environment. And he was just kind of hesitating for a moment, but you know that he lost a job because of that because that became the story. And yes, that's why they're there. That's why people go to China. And to pretend otherwise, I think, uh, is is naive in the extreme. So I think it's a race to the bottom in regard to labor issues, especially for Europeans. How can they compete?
0: That you know that kind of attitude towards the uh, environment makes me think a lot about the paris climate agreement and how they'll just let china do whatever they want it's about supposedly about protecting the environment and yet china gets to be a place where there are no environmental regulations and european companies can go there and
3: i I, you know this whole idea when um President Trump pulled out of the Paris climate agreement and the Europeans were like, now we can cooperate with China. China and uh, and Europe are far more closely aligned. But if you, you know, it's easy to say, I, you know, they signed the paper, but what were they actually doing? And as we know, on the Belt and Road Initiative, they had over 300, they built over 300 new coal-fired plants. So it's nice to sign an agreement and say that you're going to improve. But the reality is that, you know, even some of those countries where these coal-fired plants were built, the air, the wind would blow into Europe. So Europeans were actually breathing this more polluted air. And to ignore the fact that Beijing was doing this, I think, is is very troubles- troubling. And at the same time, the U.S. is on board for meeting their, you know, under Trump, they pulled out. But the U.S. actually continued uh, to follow, you know, California, various uh, U.S. states actually had an interest in in improving the environment. So, they're on they will meet their uh, their goals i think for the climate agreement so i think it's like almost like the united nations convention on the law of the sea china is a signatory the us is not but the us kind of follows it whereas china they've signed it but they're not really following it so i think actions speak louder sometimes than these agreements but i think this narrative that we will work with china on the environment is is proving problematic and that's why the CHI, because they had to dress it up, right? So um they called sui generis it's a new type of agreement. It's a one of a kind. And the reason it's so special according to the European trade folks here is that it has an environment aspect to it. So the environmental aspect of the agreement is pretty much selling the same force twice. It's saying China will actually implement you know what they promised to do according to the Paris Agreement. So you know that's not really a, a, such a great win I think, but that's how they're they're uh, spinning it, that it's a big win. And the other aspect is, you know, that they will work towards the ILO conventions and that Europe has a lever on improving human rights in China. That's another bit of a stretch of the imagination because, of course, China has signed these, um, or he agreed to this, no, I'm sorry, uh, I'm thinking about the WTO, about, you know, uh, being more transparent about subsidies for the state-owned enterprises. And these are things that have already been agreed, but they've never really been implemented. So the EU is trying to sell the same horse twice saying we have this special agreement. It's not just giving us um, limited mar- market access, but also it's got a human rights aspect and an environmental aspect. So uh, it remains to be seen if this fig leaf is going to you know, go over well with the uh, people in the European Parliament.
0: Yeah, I, I got to say, I'm not I don't have a lot of faith that uh, multilateralism will be able to contain China and the Chinese Communist Party.
3: Yeah, and that's the magic word. I mean, there's like a word salad. As long as you say multilateralism, you know, everyone's happy. And as long as it's multilateral, you can sell them anything. But I think this is the concern about a G2 world. So the U.S.-China great power rivalry and Europe is very concerned about this narrative because they're they're described, they describe themselves as a post modern organization where member states kind of pool some sovereignty so where do they fit on the international stage this is a problem for them and traditionally you know they've been sitting on the fence and you know it's great if you can count on the us and nato for defense issues and then have economic opportunities with china so i think that this period that they are now on the fence um and the high representative joseph burrell has said We are not practicing equidistance between the U.S. and China. We have values in common with the U.S. So my view is like they're sitting on the fence, but they're just kind of leaning a little towards the U.S. But it doesn't really make that much of a difference. So I think the Biden administration might be, it will be, it's early days in the Biden administration where no one's really clear what his uh, China policy is yet. So I think everyone is waiting to see what it will be. I would hope that they had something uh, enunciated earlier and more clearly, because that would help get the Europeans on board. Uh, Now the Europeans are kind of staking out their own territory with this. So it's evolving, and we'll see how the transatlantic relationship goes. But it's clearly in China's interest to weaken any bond between uh, the U.S. and their European allies. And in fact, Xi Jinping, when he came to Belgium several years ago and spoke at the College of Europe, he talked about the greater neighborhood policy. So meaning he saw Europe as the greater neighborhood, you know, like this whole kind of continental view of the future. And half Halford McKinder, the great geostrategist, uh, published a paper in nineteen oh four, the the pivot of history. That's why I think the Chains are more McKinder than than probably anybody else, because McKinder enunciated that who controls Eastern Europe? controls the world island and therefore you know they have control of the heartland and are leaders of the world so i think uh going back to the earlier uh discussion on the 17 plus one that's another reason china's there and i understand that with the recent meeting of the 17 plus one and xi jinping was done virtually uh six of the eu member states didn't send high-ranking people because of course if you have xi jinping you need to have equivalent leader of these countries a lot of journalists have written that you know it's over uh, over promising under delivering china kind of misplayed their hand but they're there you know they can um, lower the temperature or bring it up depending on the situation and these No one has left yet. There have been rumors that Estonia would leave. I heard this over a year ago, but they're still in. All right, they sent a lower level person to signal their unhappiness with uh, the lack of real investment uh, that, that Beijing had promised. But I think that this is a mechanism that will will survive. And I remember uh, at the European Parliament uh, when they were talking about, is this a Trojan horse? Should we be worried about what was then 16 plus one? And of course, when Greece was added in 2019, it became 17 plus one. So you have a land-sea corridor with the Piraeus port of Greece and then Central Eastern European countries going up all the way to the Baltic. So it's incredible, if you think about it, that China managed to create a land-sea corridor that they never had before. And I was always worried about how did the Russians see this region because Russia had traditionally had influence in Central and Eastern Europe. And they were very quiet about it. They never really uh, complained about it. China tried to expand. They wanted to add Ukraine and Belarus. And then it was clear that uh, Russia, that that was a red line, that those countries were not going to enter into this 17 plus one organization. Russia made it clear that they're in our camp and we will not allow that. But I think that... China has had interesting strategic moves and Europe has been largely ignoring it. We only saw a statement last year, a European official um, said have overestimated Russia and underestimated China's influence in this region. So China has been quietly, uh, incrementally really growing their influence in the region. And the other key country that is not an EU member state is Serbia, it's the biggest in the region has received the most uh, investment uh, from China. And it's actually easier to invest in non-EU member states because they have less rules and regulations. If you're an EU member state, there are many more rules. So that's part of it. But it's also worrying that China has growing influence in a region that, you know, the Balkan region uh, can fragment very easily and that China has growing influence there. We even see military cooperation with their drone program in Serbia, I was in Serbia for a conference and it's really surprising how you know, you see I, I took a plane and it was about 90 percent Chinese on the plane and I was really surprised by this. So you physically see the, the influence and um, it might be there as laborers or police advising the Serbs on, on use of the new uh, technology that they use. They have cameras installed and smart cities. So it's it's really moving quickly. And instead of Serbia be, being able to become a member of the EU, it's becoming more and more difficult for them to, I guess, they call the Keys so there's a body of rules and regulations that possible accession states have to meet in order to become an EU member state. And if you went back just four or five years ago, Serbia was about 80% in compliance. Now it's down to sixty-five percent, so it's in decline. Instead of getting closer to Europe, they're actually being pulled further away from Europe by their cooperation with with China. So this has long-term implications for the region. Instead of you know having them absorbed by the EU as an European member state, you actually have them outside the European orbit.
0: Well, this is what always has fascinated me about uh, the Chinese Communist Party strategy that you know if they had used their military to invade europe and create a land sea corridor that way no one would have stood for it but they used the belt and road and achieved the same goal
3: yeah it's a very brilliant strategy and no one thought of it as a strategy they just thought oh these lovely chinese businessmen are trying to to help us and help you know grow our economy and no one looked at them with suspicion so as you know they they've invested in ports all across Europe and um, oh going back to my story what I wanted to tell you about the 17 plus one there was a hearing in the European Parliament and so the, the Chinese director addressed the Parliament and it was an incredible story so you're American so you know the story about Reese's Pieces right I don't know if you remember the old commercial like uh, chocolate bar and peanut butter and they run into each other and they they discover Reese's no
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: It's a classic. He
3: gave the story that there were two directors on a stairway and they ran into each other and they dropped all their files. And so they bent over and picked up all the files and they said, why are you dealing with these files and I'm dealing with these files? We should just combine them all. And that was how the 16 plus one was born. So it's always by accident, never by design. That's the official narrative. So hmm. this is what they, they told the European Parliament, like nothing to worry about. It was just an accident on a stairway and we decided to combine all these countries together and it's easier to to organize them that way so it's (laughs) but they've they've really accomplished a lot in a little time and i would say that it doesn't take a lot of money to to create influence there if you look at the figures that they invested in hungary for example it's not very high unless now you deal with the 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 rail project which got the, the papers have been sealed for 10 years because of the COVID 19 emergency but that had been simmering on the back burner for a while, Brussels said, you know, you're not following the proper procurement procedure. And uh, Viktor Orban managed to get this agreement inked uh, because of the COVID-19 emergency measure. So that will connect Hungary and and Serbia. So, Wait,
2: so, so Hungary sealed the papers and the excuse they used for not making them public was COVID-19?
3: Yes, because it was an emergency measure.
2: Okay. It's, it's like COVID-19 is actually in the document, so they can't open the box.
3: <laughs> uh. It's
2: unbelievable, because he was already reprimanded. It, the, the, the project was stalled
3: and for a couple of years, actually. And so he used COVID-19 as an opportunity to ink the agreement and, and hide the documents. And most people who look at this rel, it's completely i think i didn't do the figures but someone told me it would take 250 years for it to actually make a profit Jeez, so it's not really that good of a deal
2: so well it's just long-term strategic thinking
3: yeah and they've got willing you know people to turn a blind eye and and dot, you know sign on the dotted line
2: right i mean just as we're still using the same railroad tracks that we built here in 1771 it, it makes sense that 250 years in the future the hunger the uh, Hungarians will still be using the Chinese tracks. And they'll finally be in the black. And they'll be in the black, yeah.
3: Yeah, but the thing is, they, it was touted as a high-speed rail. That was the initial story. But then it's downgraded to just an improved hmm. rail product for hmm. a huge price tag. And not many people even use it right now. So they want to connect it. The long-term strategy is to connect it to Piraeus, and they have these two willing countries to build the rail together. So by by having some EU member states in this grouping and some non-EU member states, it makes it far more complicated to get things done. And so I think uh, if they, they could have, if you look at the map, they could have just used EU member states, but there must be some reasoning behind that, you know, to to work with non-EU member states as well. And obviously it's much easier to to do investments in countries that don't have to follow rules or don't have um, open bidding procedures and things like that, but I think that Europe slowly, slowly woke up to that. But it's far too late. I think that uh, they really need to pay far more attention to, the, to their immediate neighborhood, let alone, you know, be concerned about what's going on in the South China Sea. They haven't been paying attention to their immediate neighborhood, and so we have this whole debate in Europe about strategic autonomy. Uh, you know, they they really need to to pay far more attention to what's going on.
1: Do you think but the 17 plus one, um, even if you're saying that the these countries, some of the countries might be a little upset with China right now, eventually they'll recover, essentially. Like maybe China will increase investments or like some way and they'll kind of be able to repair the relationships with the Baltics and that kind of stuff. I
3: wouldn't write it off. I don't think China will close it down because then they'll lose faith and it will be perceived as a failure. So I think that they'll just let it simmer. They might, you know, the whole thing, the whole big attraction was supposed to be Xi Jinping and that failed miserably. And I think many people are like, that's it, it's over, uh, zombie companies and all of this. But I think they'll they'll just turn down the volume and they'll come back to it. And China never ends a program. (laughs) They keep these things going. And even during COVID-19, they were meeting with, member states to to share best practices on what they were doing with COVID-19. Two years ago, I was uh, invited to the Blood Strategic Forum, which is in Slovenia. And, you know, Europeans don't like to have events take place at 8 a.m. But I looked at the agenda and there was like this Eastern Med Security event at 8 a.m. And I thought, oh, I better go. So I went and I was so shocked. That the whole audience—about 80% of the people in the audience were Chinese. I thought, "Wow, you know, why are the Chinese coming to an Eastern Med security event?" And I talked to them during the coffee break, and they told me that they were there for a 17-plus-one think tank event, which was going to take place on the sidelines of this uh, security and defense event. And I was like, "Oh, wow! You know, I'm with a think tank. I would, I would love to to come." And you know, they were very polite, and they they couldn't say no, and I got to go. So I think I was the first person to attend this that wasn't a member of the 17 plus one. So I just kind of sat in the back and took notes and watched what they were doing. And what the Chinese were getting out of it, they were watching how these people were interacting with each other, how they talked about Brussels. And the people running this program, uh, they were part of the very first class after um, that Deng Xiaoping had you know, these Chinese scholars leave the country after the Cultural Revolution to get an education and to come back and help uh, the PRC. And so the woman was sent to study economic reform in Tito's Yugoslavia. And the man who was running this program was to study what was going on in Poland. And so they had such a depth of experience. They knew the languages, they knew many, many people in the region. And I thought, I can't think of any European diplomat that has that kind of depth of experience. So it was really fascinating for me to see uh, what was going on. But I think what was key is that the, they could learn how these countries or member states perceive Brussels as well. And and they could find where there were little uh, divisions and, you know, that's all you need. The divisions exist, but then you can actually accelerate them or, or drive a wedge in, into them. So I think that they have a very long-term strategy for understanding the region. They really do have a, a great depth of knowledge of the region. And I, I think that under the Trump administration it is quite fascinating that they, they managed to, through their diplomacy, to kind of counteract that because the Europeans were doing it. It was the Americans that came in and, and used, I think, Wes Mitchell, and it was part of his strategy uh, to use diplomacy to kind of cultivate better relations and, and also have them sign the, the clean network uh, to prevent Huawei from getting in there. And I think that this was an effective strategy, actually, uh, far more effective than what the,
2: the Europeans were doing. So, Well, I, I like the part where you're saying America is better than Europe
3: no no <laughs> no i'm not saying that i, I live in brussels I, I need to stay here <laughs> but I, I think that they're they're you know considered smaller countries countries that have privileged relations with china like france and germany you know they they can travel there xi jinping will see them uh china understands that the smaller member states you know they feel important when li Keqiang comes and and has a meeting with them and they do the photo and they are able to have kind of their own relations so as long as France and Germany, as we saw with the recent uh, leaders' summit, France and Germany playing above the heads of the rest of the Europeans. I saw Central Eastern European leaders say, well, as long as you're doing that, you shouldn't criticize us for dealing with the 17 plus one. And it also, you know, it's interesting um, in the early days of eu china relations, when they wanted to signal to the U.S. that they were unhappy with something that they did, the Europeans would kind of switch more to, to Beijing and as kind of a punishment for the US, for example, with the Iraq War, you saw the Europeans kind of like, we want to build up China to to be a counterbalance to US power and influence. But now you see kind of the Central Eastern Europeans, some countries, for example, Hungary, when they want to show displeasure with Brussels, they kind of turn more to China. And so they're almost doing the same thing that the Europeans were doing to the US, but you have it on a smaller scale. uh, also, it's a, it's a card they can play. It's a new phase for them. Well, actually, these relations go back a long, long way. Hungarian-China um, relations go back quite a long way. And so people should never underestimate you know, the whole people-to-people policies that uh, China or that Beijing actually encourages because these actually have a long-term effect. And, and we see that, for example, with relations with Hungary. Yeah, I think... That makes it
1: very interesting what Wang Yi had said in his recent speech where he was talking about what the U.S. needs to do to, you know, get back in China's good graces. One of the things was we need dialogue, U.S.-China dialogue at the people-to-people level. And, you know.
0: We can have what Europe has.
1: Yeah. It also made me think of uh, that photo of the Romanian president, like, sitting with Donald Trump and shaking hands. Uh, what you were saying earlier about like America coming in and kind of doing the same thing that China was doing in a certain way, where they recognize that like, it's a big deal for like a Chinese official to come visit you. It's a big deal for the president of Romania to sit in the White House,
3: you know? Yeah, it's it's true. And uh, even saw the, you know, when President Vucic was sit- sitting, he's a very big man, um, the leader of Serbia, and he was sitting at a very tiny desk. <laughs> in the White House, but he, you know, signed the agreement. And, uh, yeah, it's it's a big deal. And it also gives them legitimacy domestically. Like, you know, the leader of the United States met with me. And even if you have to sit at a little tiny desk, uh, I don't know why Donald Trump did that. It looked, it was just a funny, it's an odd visual. But, um, and, of course, in Serbia, they, they, they came up with video clips of this and with very funny soundtracks and things like that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it they're both playing the same game, and it's winning hearts and minds. And I think that's that's what's kind of similar. I don't agree with the whole Cold War narrative, but we start seeing this kind of cultivating of relations. And so for China to succeed, all they need to do, they don't need to win Europe over. They just need to neutralize Europe. They need Europe to just sit on the fence and not to go to the U.S. side. So, And China has been able to do that uh, as long as Europe is co-opted and neutralized, you know, Beijing is happy.
0: So what can be done to break China's grip on Europe? I mean, we were talking about the Trump administration and their outreach to a lot of these Eastern European countries, but it seems like China has a pretty good grip on Europe and within the U.S. itself. There's also a lot of, uh, you know, the, the business Wall Street sector very close to China.
3: Yeah, it's it's uh can be very discouraging. I think the public needs to to be more active. And you know, we see inside the European Parliament, uh, the Greens actually have a, a great voice on this. Reinhard Buteckhofer from the German Green Party has been probably the most vocal in regards to these issues. And so it's gonna be very difficult. The Chinese have had a long-term strategy and they have made a lot of investments. And some businesses in Europe are doing quite well in China. And so they do the lobbying on behalf of uh, the chinese communist party so it's it's going to be very hard to um to push back on this especially in a difficult economic climate post-covid 19.
0: well something you said earlier that actually i found very encouraging is that you mentioned a lot of people in europe have a new look at the chinese communist party they're not happy about it i i've found that too in the u.s as well and really what it seems to me that is happening is broadly more and more people are becoming aware of the threat of the chinese communist party all that's left is this small group of elite that have personal gain associated with the chinese communist party and if the the public can just become more and more aware and more active then it won't matter what like these this very small group of people who are running the show do shelly you seem to be
1: well i mean they own. are running the show that's the issue right like it might not be a lot of people but if we're talking about the hu- huge corporations or if we're talking about the leaders of countries that's not you know
0: well which is why the masses need to be activated rise up are you calling for like a populist
1: revolution
0: <laughs> i am i volunteer myself to lead it as sort of um personality cult perhaps uh-huh um there's my solution
3: see that's why your show is so important you know i think you reach a a large audience especially young people and you do it in a humorous way but it's also very informative so i think that this is the key and i i've seen so much misreporting uh on, on things that are going in china that i'm so glad that that you're able to to get the stories out there in a very clear and comprehensive way and in a humorous way so i think Thank you, that's a great job. And I think we really do have some serious struggles ahead of us and I I don't, you know, they will never give up. They work very, very hard. I I was amazed to watch the whole Huawei uh, debate in Europe and you know, they don't take no for an answer. So if you, if a country, because Sweden said, no, you're not allowed in. they actually sued them right so they huawei had a lawsuit against them and probably the the more oblique way is the best way for example france just changed the laws and so never had to say huawei you know will not be allowed in they just used the trusted vendor kind of language and never singled them out and germany is kind of just doing the merkeling way you know to do and never making a decision and you know huawei's building on the ground there and establishing facts on the ground and and it will be very difficult to rip out all that kit so there are different approaches across europe and i think that after four years you know europe uh, i have this book on my desk to always remind me uh, there was a book written and it rave reviews how europe will lead the 21st century well you know they had four years where it was kind of america first the u.s looking more inwardly where was europe you know they they really didn't rush to fill the the void the vacuum uh on the international stage so they just kind of kept you know going along doing their investments in china and uh when they finally had a president who said let's work together uh let's create a united front uh to to you know balance and help shape uh china's policy choices you know they're they were reluctant so i i studied in london uh, i was a uh, convinced european of course now the uk has left the eu but i in some respects i'm a bit disappointed and if you walk down uh this main street here where all the european institutions are there's a statue uh to commemorate uh, a victim of the holocaust so people pass that every day when they go to work and you know they don't seem it doesn't seem to register and i think that what will it take you know when i was a little girl you know i would read Um, these books I thought what would I do you know if I lived during that period the diary of Anne Frank you know you just when you're little you're so impressionable and and you just wonder and now we're kind of living in that period and and what are people doing what what does what will it take to for people to wake up and make some decisions that might make things more difficult economically I think that's you know are they willing to trade their values for economic gain it seems uh, uh, the only good news that Merkel will be leaving. Mm-hmm. And so Germany really does lead on policy towards China. That's that's a clear thing. And the next uh, government, it looks like it will be a coalition government between the CDU, the Christian Democratic Union, and the Greens. And the Greens are traditionally more transatlanticists, and they're very tough on human rights. And they, they were actually created to support Tibet. That's the roots of the Green Party. So I think that the narrative will be different coming out of Germany. And I think that there are plenty of really you know, good people in Germany. <laughs> I remember with the, the refugee crisis, you couldn't buy a bunk bed anymore in Germany because all these people ran out to IKEA to buy bunk beds to to take in refugees into their homes. So there are plenty of really good people. And it's just maybe the elites uh, are, are, are disconnected from. Um, with these difficult policy choices. And I think they have to live their values. And that's the problem. Uh, I think the issue of Europe, you know that, that's one thing that they should really stand on the international stage for and to be kind of the conscience because of what they went through. And they're kind of turning a blind eye to these these issues. And I think uh, it's a problem for everybody. And I hope uh, that through good diplomacy, the Biden administration might be able to win them over uh, win more support for these issues. But I think that their interests do diverge and we'll see how Blinken and uh, the rest of the crew are able to work with their European counterparts.
0: Well, I I feel like that is a, you gave us a little bit of hope there at the end, (laughs) a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, uh, when my populist uprising begins globally, things are going to be good. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us today. That was a lot of really great information. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a really critical time we're in right now and people need to understand what's happening and make the choice.
3: Yeah. Well, thank you for all that you do and doing it with great humor. And we need that after a long, hard day. I turn you on and watch it at night. So thank you so much. And, uh, it was a real joy and honored to be on your show. Thank
0: I, you. I appreciate that. Thank you.
3: You know, after that, I feel like I've learned how even
1: more complicated Europe was than I realized before.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, as she said, it's not it's not a monolith. It's even like within a country, there's so many different things happening. Like a good example is Germany. There is a lot of backlash against the Chinese Communist Party going on in Germany. At the same time. Like among the, the, like the people level. Yeah. And well, even like, um, what was the thing with the, was it the German ambassador that came up? Oh,
2: right. That he uh, had criticized the prc as he was about to retire
1: the german ambassador to the un
0: so yeah it's 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 a it's confusing as you say
1: when i was in uh berlin in 2019 i just remember huawei ads everywhere yeah so so yeah
0: (laughs) and you learned a lot about east germany yeah that's true too isn't that where merkel was from eastern germany
1: oh yeah i yeah
0: hmm hmm interesting
2: well, in theory, she's going to be stepping down at the end of the year.
0: We should do a, a celebratory live stream. <laughs> Merkel stepping down. To, to, to celebrate her illustrious 15-year career as 15 chancellor years. of Germany.
1: You know, it's interesting. Like Five or six years ago, I was reading this New York Times article about Merkel going to China and meeting with Chinese human rights activists mm-hmm. while she was there. And it was kind of this article that was about how, you know, she wants to make sure that human rights gets addressed, that this is a very important thing for the German Chancellor. That's how this article was talking about Mm -hmm. it. So, yeah, that's really interesting to kind of look back at now, given what, you know, has happened. Well, basically that like the business interests seem to have trumped everything. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And unfortunately, we're seeing that in the U.S. as well. Uh, Well, it hasn't happened yet, but we know there is a powerful faction within the U.S. trying to reset china relations
1: i just keep going back to that you know blackstone page or is it blackrock or blackstone blackrock yeah. investment the, the unleash the potential of chinese bonds
0: unleash uh, yeah Cthulhu for is that how unleash you say it? Okay. i don't know i can remember it off the top of my head <laughs> uh, you, typically good things are not unleashed yes yeah What's a good thing that gets unleashed? An alpaca. It's on a leash. You take it off the leash and it and it frolics around. In the very literal sense of unleashing something? Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, yeah, uh, okay. so I
2: win this argument.
0: All right. <laughs> you heard it here. It's a first on this China Unscripted.
2: We
1: were talking about Europe.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, and then it always comes back to our own issues.
2: I mean, isn't just... That's just how people are. That's how people
0: are. It's really always about ourselves.
1: And that's something that the Chinese Communist Party understands.
0: Yeah. People to people. The Communist Party is about people.
1: And peace. I love that she talked about <laughs> the, this peace cable. The and I peace was like, cable. really? <laughs>
2: of
0: course. i like. I like, how... What more evil name could you come up with? The Beast. It's like
2: the Ministry of Love. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's it's really.
0: <laughs> but overall, I think the message again is that it is up to the the, the public. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's it's up to us. We're the ones who are going to be you know electing these officials, and we have to make it clear that no, nah, China's China is a red line. We don't we don't deal with a country that's committing genocide. Period.
1: I mean, we we'll have to deal clear. with them. But maybe we shouldn't be pouring massive amounts of foreign investment into them.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Also, like they do offer some products at a much lower cost. So maybe
0: we could get some of those. Oh, they got to Matt. <laughs> Where's the ejection seat?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Wait. I, I feel like that's gonna keep coming back.
0: Maybe we should actually install one.
2: No. <laughs> no what I is don't that? Agree. There
1: there is a oh, is it the Graham Norton show that they actually have this like chair where they can dump people? Like that's really? they have like, <laughs> like the segment called called the big back. red chair or something, and then like they have audience members sit in the chair, and if they say something stupid, there's a button that he could push and it actually like oh, dumps awesome. them backwards.
0: We should start uh blending our, our, you know, serious China analysis with sort of a Nickelodeon game show kind of thing where there's slime and maybe in like a slide that dumps someone into slime, the slime will be sourced from China, obviously.
1: Who's gonna clean up the slime? I call not it.
0: Um can we outsource that to China? Do we need to clean up slime?
1: Yeah. Okay, we'll just have to move the entire studio. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> Big things in this year for China Unscripted. Uh,
1: Alright, I think Chris, you need to have yeah. some lunch. This w- is w- once again,
2: you're Chris Chappell.
1: I'm <laughs> yeah.
0: and I'm Matt Gnezda.
1: I'm still Shelly.
0: Talk to you next time.